Welcome to Tangible Assets for Tangible Results with Troy Eckert. This one-hour, information-packed program will give insight and specific details how investors can review, learn about, and consider different tangible asset classes for your portfolio. Array of topics, specific details, and critical tips to protect and build your wealth. Now, here is your host, Troy Eckert. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I appreciate you joining the show today. We ought to have a great time over the next uh, 59 minutes, and what I want to do is make it well worth your while. First off, I'd like to start off by introducing myself on a new program and a new series and let you know who your guest speaker is going to be for the next 13 plus weeks. And I think it's important you know a little about my background, and I'll try not to bore you. First off, I know that when I listen to podcasts and I listen to different experts on their various topics, one thing that's most critical to me is to know what do they bring to the table? What type of information do they have that makes them believe they should get my attention, which is valuable time I don't have to waste? So let's start off by giving a little background on myself. So I'm Troy W. Eckert. I grew up in South Texas. I started my career in the investment world in 1985. I was fortunate enough to be involved in the oil and gas industry right about the time it crashed. That's right. I started off my career at the very bottom, not because of choice, because of timing. And what that did was it gave me an opportunity to really start to understand about tangible assets. I was able to work with some of the most wealthy investors across the United States in the 1980s who were looking for ways to invest outside the public market. Now, two things happened when I got started in my career. The first thing that happened is I started to learn very quickly how tangible assets, something that you can see, touch, kick, or feel, played an important role in investors' portfolios. I also learned how many of these tangible assets began to layer one on top of the other as all these investments that were outside of the public market really demonstrated uh, an accretive value or possibly a higher level of risk based upon multiple factors. So what I would like to do is tell you a little bit about how my career evolved over the last 30 years that brought me to today's show. First off and foremost, I have had the probably the greatest PhD lesson in business that any entrepreneur can have. I have been working with and on behalf of millionaires all over the country that have been everybody from famous authors and engineers and inventors. Uh, I have dealt with billionaires and millionaires. And at the end of the day, the amount of dialogue and feedback that I've had from these investors has really given me an opportunity to expand my knowledge on different areas of investments. Everything from manufacturing facilities, ostrich farms back in the 1990s, saltwater wells, real estate, multifamily, Bitcoin investments. I mean, I literally have seen it all over the last 35 years. Now, you as one of my guest listeners uh, listening to the show today are probably wondering where the show and the direction is going to go. Well, I'm going to give you a opportunity to relive the last 35 years about how tangible investments have evolved and changed. But more importantly, what you should be able to get from my show every single week is tidbits of information that will help you miss the landmines, find the hidden opportunity, be able to ask me questions about certain investments that you're inquiring about, you're already invested in, or you're thinking about participating in, and doing yourself a favor. You're going to learn some hard, hard tricks, and you're going to learn how to protect yourself from unscrupulous investments, and you're going to learn how to dig. You're going to learn how to dig into these investments and really understand what's behind each and every one of these investment classes. 
So how are we going to do that? Well, I'm going to lead every week with a different topic and a different set of circumstances. I hope to be able to pull some uh, previous historical uh, investment opportunities and projects and wins and losses to help you understand how absolutely intricate uh, physical investing is when it comes to tangible assets. Now, I can tell you that the stock market itself today, everybody's totally enamored with it. I've got uh, young kids that are 17, 18, 19 years old that are trading stocks. We all know what the market's been like the last six or seven years. We know what the trading is going on in the marketplace today. What we really don't know is what's changed in the marketplace over the last, let's call it 35 or 40 years. So let's just give you some interesting data that I think would be very relevant for each one of you to kind of hear. It kind of surprised me, in fact, when I looked it up and I started really paying attention to some of the numerical differences from, let's say, 1975 until now, uh, the information is quite staggering. It just depends on how you evaluate. So let's talk about it. First off, let's define what a tangible asset is. Now, in tangible assets, I want you to think about this is my simplistic terms are if you can't see it, touch it, kick it or feel it, it's not tangible. So I can't really, I can get a stock certificate, but that stock certificate is a contract. It's a contract to own a share of a company. I can't trade it unless there's a stock market or exchange. It's difficult. But I can go change machinery, buildings, real estate, mineral rights. I have land. I have cash. I can use fiat currency to change dollar bills into pesos. So there is something tangible about the particular asset that fits in this tangible asset class. Now, when you take a look at intangible, well, what is that? I mean, it's still in the balance sheet. You still have companies who have great balance sheets based on a lot of intangible assets. What they might be is something like a brand or a trademark, maybe licenses they hold, goodwill. You know, let's take it. The, the Nike Swish has a lot of value to it. The Coca-Cola trademark has a lot of value to it. But if you went out and physically said, well, show me that trademark. Where is it? What does it look like? Well, you can but how do you quantify that? That's more of a blue sky or more of a goodwill type of a trademark value. So when we think about tangible assets, this is not about buying stock. This is not about buying bonds. This is about you as an investor physically owning or participating in actual tangible asset investing and ownership where whatever you invest in, you can see it, touch it, kick it, or feel it. Best way I can describe that is let's take a look at the stock market. So in 1975, on the top companies in the S&P 500, there was approximately $715 billion in value, 1975, $715 billion in value for the top companies in the S&P 500. Of that, roughly, uh, let's look at it, about $550 billion of that total amount was in tangible assets. It was in rail cars, railroads, uh, Santa Fe. It was in uh, companies that owned real property. It was companies that owned inventory. It was things that on the balance sheet showed up to be as tangible assets. So we had an enormous amount of value in the S&P top companies back in 1975, but probably 60 to 70% of it was made up of tangible assets. If the companies went out of business, you could go sell off their underlying tangible assets and probably get back a good portion of the value of the stock because they had actual physical assets to sell. Let's fast forward that to the latest report was out in 2018. That number is way past the numbers I'm about to give you. But in 2018, that, it could been, that number had been completely reversed. Now, instead of having a stock market, an S&P 500 made up predominantly of tangible assets where they had some substance behind them. Now in today's market, we have an absolute reversal. That reversal is, the number is out of $25 trillion 
of the S&P top companies in 2018, of that 21 trillion was intangible. Blue sky, brand, licensing, items that if you stripped it down to its core could not be sold off, such as trains, planes, real estate, et cetera. So now we go from 1975, we go into 2018, we have a complete explosion in the value of the S&P companies, but that explosion does not come in terms of tangible asset. It comes in an explosion of actual assets that are intangible, and that number has just astronomically gone off the chart since 2018. You look at companies like Tesla. If you took Tesla and stripped it down to its bones, what's the physical plants and inventory worth relative to the blue sky value or the potential value? Now, why am, I, why am I so focused on tangible assets? Well, let's just take, for example, the fact that in 1985, you had enormous amounts of real estate that collapsed overnight. You had real estate that was uh, acquired and developed in the early 1980s, late 1970s. When I started my career, I was all part of the uh, federal savings and loans debacle or crash. And you had investors who had wisely avoided that over frothy market of real estate development were sitting on cash or availability to credit when others had already spent their money, had made their investments in these tangible assets. Well, at the end of the day, the banks came back and said, look, we've got borrowers who borrowed money against all these tangible assets, such as multifamily apartment complexes, et cetera. Now we have to figure out because they can't pay their bill, because the market has fallen out, what is the liquidation value of those particular assets so we can maybe figure out how bad our loan portfolios upside down. Well, the good news is, is that there was something to sell off. The good news is there was some actual tangible value to it, but in reality, um, the tangible value was much, much less. So when you think about a tangible asset, it always has some kind of tradable value because there's something to sell. It's not just a piece of paper. When a corporation goes bankrupt, the first thing that happens is the bankruptcy trustee looks around and says, guess what? The stock, the common shareholders, there's no value left. Preferred shareholders, you might have some value, most likely not much, if anything. And the list goes on and on where they began to start tracking down or eliminating all these non-tangible asset claims to the corporation's balance sheet. And when they're done, they say, look, we only own planes, trains, rail cars, real estate. We own right-of-ways. We own things of tangible asset. So this billion-dollar company is only worth $150 million because that's all we can really go sell in order to make money. Why do investors or why should investors care about this? Well, it's a two-fold scenario. One, you've got to think about what you're investing in today. In the public stock market, how many of your investments in publicly traded companies are actually based on true tangible value versus subjective blue sky value? But more importantly is, what are the investments out there that you and I are going to look at that we may desire to invest our money in? Do we want to go put some of our retirement money in buying a, uh, a widget factory? Well, that may be true, but what's the factory worth? What are the supply and inventory of the widgets? What does it look like when I finally determine that I'm going to put up money to invest in a widget factory and 85% of the value of that was the owner's name where he says, I've been in business 100 years, so I want $100 million for my company and $10 million is really based on inventory and real estate. The other 90 million is because I'm a good guy and I've been around 100 years. You hear that all the time. Well, there is a lot to be said for Blue Sky, for branding, for name and, and, and all types of goodwill. But it, it, for me as an investor, I really, really lean hard on tangible asset value. So let's talk about that. So when I look at investing, I'm looking at 
uh, let's take a piece of real estate. This is a great example. When I take a look at a piece of real estate, right now in Dallas-Fort Worth, the real estate market is off the chart. And what I mean by that is I'm seeing numbers for real estate, raw land, uh, developed buildings, commercial buildings, residential, up 25, 30, almost double in price for raw land in the last nine months since COVID started. So I take a look at land and I look, I look at it maybe a little different than some folks do. I look at it and say, when I drive up to the property, the first thing I want to know is what the land is worth itself, just the raw land. I don't care if it has a house on it, a building, an old industrial site. I don't care if it has a, a, a fourplex on it. For me, the number one thing is what is the raw land worth? Because that is the one thing that cannot be replaced. Buildings burn down, businesses go out of business. There's different transformations in what's the physical structure on top of the property. But if I focus on the real tangible value, not the subjectivity of it, it really boils down to me, the land itself. Now, when I do that, the reason it's important is, is that I can add to the tangible component by giving some value to what's on top of it. Maybe there's a fairly new fourplex. Maybe there's an apartment complex, maybe an industrial park. So if I look at a property from the ability to understand the tangibility of it, I have to do what I normally do, which is say, in a worst case scenario, what is the value of that asset? What is tangible? What is blue sky? So let's just walk through that scenario. The raw land is the raw land. If everybody around me is worth $50,000 an acre, and I'm getting my property for at least 50000 or below, I feel confident that the value in the raw land is worth the fair market value. If I then look at a 24-unit apartment complex, a mini apartment complex sitting on top of that land, now I have several other factors to consider. I have to figure out, well, what's the income worth? What's the condition of the building? What's my expenses? What's my net operating income? That's a lot of subjectivity. So if I'm a true tangible investor, I like that, that vertical construction on top of that property, but I have to also ask myself, what in fact is it that I'm going to give that, that piece of construction, that vertical aspect of that real estate on top of the raw land value? That's why if a house burns down, if your residential house burns down, you never get full price for your house because why? Part of your mortgage, part of your acquisition was the land itself. They'll give you the vertical construction insurance premium claim, but you're not going to get any land for the va- any value for the land. Well, when we think of tangible assets, that's exactly what we have to do. We have to think about what is it that we're really buying. I'm going to give you a couple of examples that I have gone through myself, and I want to show you how by understanding the tangible asset side of your investment choices, how it can, li- it can provide you or literally lead you to a different philosophy in some of your investments. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking anybody to buy into this particular show's contention that uh, we're all about tangible assets and we don't have regularly publicly traded assets or things that are outside of tangibility. I've got a stock portfolio. I've got just like everybody else. I have things I invest in that are intangible. I've got corporations. I've got investments in items that are based on book value and, and goodwill. But at the end of the day, because of my 35 years of being involved in, in a tangible asset environment, I have a tremendous respect for the value of that tangible investment. So let's go through a couple of examples that I think maybe help us set the tone for this show over the next year or two, as long as we keep going, which I think is going to be quite a while because I'm having fun. Let's just talk about it. So here's an example. When I was uh, acquiring oil and gas mineral leases south of San Antonio, Texas, um, I stumbled across a large block of land that I wanted to go in, actually get a lease on. I wanted to go drill a well on a particular parcel of land. I contacted the landowner. And the landowner said, I own the surface rights. 
and I own the mineral rights, but I'm in bankruptcy. So I don't have the, uh, I don't have the ability to negotiate because it's now in a bankruptcy trustee's hands. So this particular individual confirmed he's got two tangible assets that he owns, but he also is not in control of. One was he owned the surface rights. Maybe I could go farm some land or maybe I could go build some buildings or houses, but he also owned the mineral rights below it. So I go through the process of contacting the bankruptcy trustee. So I do that. The bankruptcy trustee says, look, we don't want to lease the land. We want to sell the land because at the end of the day, I've got to liquidate these assets to settle the bankruptcy trustee. I didn't really like the particular combination of the land and the mineral rights in that particular scenario. But the trustee said, however, this individual owns 100 acres of land outside of San Antonio. It's in a small suburb. Uh, He's got a crop planted on it. I need to sell that land. Well, having experience and having been able to have this, what I call a PhD lesson in uh, investing in tangible assets because of the hundreds, if not thousands of millionaires I dealt with over the last 35 years, I've always got this special radar that goes off in the back of my head and it says, well, let's take a look at where this particular 100 acres is and let's see if by chance that 100 acres is in fact in an area that has been really evolving for water rights. San Antonio was in desperate need of water. I had water rights experience and I said, let's take a look at this particular 100 acres and see if it falls within that water rights uh, arbitrage or opportunity. And if it does, there may be an intrinsic value here that even the current owner and the bankruptcy trustee may not be aware of. Here's what I did. I took the legal description. I took a look at the surface. I drove down to where the location was and I noticed there was a nice cornfield there. You can call up the market. You can figure out what corn's going to go for. And 100 acres of corn at so many bushels per uh, acre tells me exactly what the corn crop is worth. Not much. I would never want to be a farmer, really. But what it also told me is, is that there was an expectation of revenue that possibly this current owner slash bankruptcy trustee might yield from, from the value of the corn when it's harvested. But that was about it. So now we're dealing with raw land numerical value. I looked around. I did my own appraisal. I said, the land's probably worth about $10,000 an acre, maybe a little more, but $10,000 seems to be a reasonable price. When I checked the records and I took a look at the actual intrinsic value, I recognized that this 100 acres also came with 100 acres of water rights. Now, those water rights at that time were trading for about $5,500 per acre, which meant if I could buy that land for $10,000 an acre and I knew the water rights were worth $5,500 an acre, I was buying that land at almost 50% or less of the actual market value. Bankruptcy trustee didn't know that. The guy that owned the property didn't know that because if he knew it, he'd have sold his water rights off to pay some of his debt and possibly retain some of his bankrupt assets or maybe got himself out of bankruptcy because it had cash. So I went ahead and acquired the property. I put down $200,000. I borrowed $800,000 at the bank. Within two weeks of closing, I sold the water rights for $550,000. I basically got $550,000 as a cash receipt for deeding over the 100 acres of water rights. I still had water that was assigned to the 100 acres for farming. That's the way the water rights worked at that time. You got to keep one acre for your surface and one acre you could sell as a fungible asset. I reduced my debt at the bank from $800,000 by a $550,000 repayment toward the bank. They signed the release and let me do that. Now I've got this very small loan for $250,000 against what at that time was a million dollar property. I then realized that the surface, had it not had a crop on it, 
had water, was accessible by a nice uh, ingress, egress. And so I had my employee contact two or three known buyers in the area that possibly needed 100 acres that had not been subdivided. Long story short is we acquired the property in April. About two weeks after we acquired it, we reduced our debt by 550,000 or essentially 55% of the acquisition cost by selling the water rights. We then sold the surface rights for $1.2 million. We walked away with about $750,000 in gain on a million dollar acquisition all in under six months. Now, as I'm pointing out, this is just a nice victory. It's a nice successful story about a transaction that involved real estate, but it really involved a lot more. The tangible component of this transaction was that by knowing and understanding the water rights, by knowing and understanding the value of the crop and the limited revenue it was gonna generate, by understanding the value of the actual surface when it was deemed non-agricultural, and by understanding the market in that particular sector, it gave me a distinct advantage on buying something that literally was like looking at a bucket of gold sitting on top of the, the driveway saying, just come over and grab it and put it in your car, it's all yours. Now, the question might be is, well, how do I find those types of opportunities? Well, the first thing is what I've learned from most of my very, very successful partners over the years, they're very inquisitive. They wanna know the where, the why, the what. They dig, they dig, they dig. And when they start digging for information, they're not afraid to talk to anybody. The one thing I've learned when you deal with individuals that specialize in tangible assets is, show me. Somebody tells me they have a commercial building for sale, Great, I'll drive over there. I'll be there in less than an hour and I wanna take a look at the building. So let's go to example number two. I was buying a building, uh, my, one of my first acquisitions. And at the time I was looking for something just to buy and maybe fix up and turn around and sell it back. I wasn't looking for anything for long-term hold. Not being very experienced 25, 30 years ago, I said, you know, here's a building. Looks like every commercial industrial building in this industrial park is going for, uh, you know, maybe 100 or 200,000 more than the building I was looking at. And I scratched my head and I said, why is this building selling for a couple hundred thousand dollars less than every other building in the market? When I got inside the building, it was very clear to me, the building itself had been used as a cabinet shop. And that building had anywhere from six inches up to 20 inches of sawdust. On every rafter, every eave, every inch of that building was laden with, with sawdust because they'd use it as a cabinet shop. So when any buyer came in, the first thing they thought about is, whoa, I'm going to have to come in and spend a lot of money to clean this shop up. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know what it's going to cost. What a headache. My theory has always been with tangible assets, you buy ugly. You buy the thing nobody else wants if you know that the intrinsic value, the raw land value, is worth as much as you're going to pay for maybe vertical construction. I viewed the lot itself worth as much as I was going to pay for the whole building. I knew that if I came in and knocked the building to the ground, the lot itself was worth, worth as much as the building. I bought the building, I closed on it. I then hired a, a service crew to come out and I said, I want this entire building clean, head to toe. I want blowers in, I want all the dust taken out. What do you think that's gonna cost me? Of course, I did that during my due diligence. They said, I don't know, 10 or $15,000 maximum. We'll get the whole thing clean and be ready to go. So within two weeks of closing, the building was cleaned up. All the sawdust was taken out. It looked immaculate compared to its previous view. I put it right back on the market. and I sold the building for about $100,000 more than I paid for it in less than 90 days. Now, fast forward that, that building's worth about three times what I sold it for 25 years ago. But again, that has to do with looking back over your shoulder, which I'm not a big advocate of. I just know I want to make money and I want to be successful by moving forward. The key to that particular story is, is that when you're driving around and you're looking at tangible assets, you're looking at 
uh, anything that has to do with real estate, or maybe you're looking at a market that's down like oil and gas the last nine years, you have a tendency to, to have a John decide. You don't want to look in that area because you're thinking, well, maybe there's something wrong with it. Maybe, maybe that building has something really, really bad for it. Maybe there was uh, some kind of chemicals in the building. Maybe there was a, a lien put on it. Maybe somebody died in an accident and it's, got, it's tainted. Well, how are you going to know if you don't ask? I, my wife says I'm a putzer. She says, Troy, when you go get a gallon of milk, you're gone for an hour. And she knows now after 35 years of marriage why I'm gone for an hour. She says, look, you go get the milk. I'll start making the homemade biscuits, but I know you're not going to be back for 45 minutes an hour because on the way there and on the way back, I'm going down side streets and I'm looking at yards and I'm looking for who's for sale by owner. And maybe that sign that's painted by hand that's leaning sideways says for sale by owner. And it's five acres of land that nobody knew was for sale, but you get out and you move the bushes and it says for sale. Now I'm somewhat focusing on real estate because I would imagine the majority of my listeners are not really that educated or informationally wise when it comes to oil and gas. My expertise is oil and gas. I've been drilling wells for 35 years, over thousands of wells. I have got millions of mineral acres I've reviewed with seismic and I own and my background is energy, but it is all about tangible assets. It's pipelines, it's oil wells, it's mineral rights, it's right-of-ways, it's fabrication. But there is an absolute correlation between that kind of tangible asset and real estate. Because I'll go through another one as an example for you about about how we as investors need to start opening our eyes and we start being inquisitive because, you know, there is a tremendous value in the stock market. Let me just throw something out for you. What would happen today if Russia decided to launch an EMP, electric magnetic pulse, in the atmosphere, which is the big scare that maybe they're testing our western boundaries of our country and our airspace by maybe they launch an EMP at 30,000 feet and we all go, oh, that's conspiracy theory. Don't worry about it. Well, this is not a conspiracy theory show, but let me point out a fact. If there was a successful EMP and we stopped having the ability for electronic use and it covered a third to half the country, what do you think would happen to Google and Facebook and the other uh, stocks that are all basically predicated on uh, digital communication, digital transactions? And all of a sudden now we're faced with saying, well, how in the heck do we value companies that have lost a third, half or much of their business because that was their, their commerce? Their commerce was all types of uh, internet activity that's now been shut down. Well, at $25 trillion at the end of 2018, it pretty much would affect most of the major corporations on the S&P. And if it did that, what happens to your stock portfolio? What happens to you and the other investors have said, oh, that'll never happen. Don't worry about it. Uh, EMP is just a, a monkey's game. A, a EMP is never going to happen. Well, that's true. Maybe it never happened. But what if it does? What assets do you own that gives you some kind of balance in your portfolio? Let me use another example for you. So when I was working with this bankruptcy trustee on that land in South Texas that I was describing a while ago, I also happened to notice that I was very inquisitive. So I looked at another mineral block that I was trying to buy, mineral rights I was trying to buy for oil and gas. It was close to Houston, Texas. Again, farmer in bankruptcy, I contacted the bankruptcy trustee, said the same thing. He said, you know, my job is to liquidate the assets. Um, I've got two scenarios that you need to think about. One, um, the sons inherited some of the property. They own some of the minerals. The father retained some. He's bankrupt. I need to liquidate that. Plus, he owns a small residential development where he can't pay it, so he's got lots. He's got property. But let's fast forward. I contacted the two sons who had already inherited those mineral rights. They lived in the Northeast, had no clue about mineral rights, had not been home in a long time, apparently. They weren't close to their dad. And we called them and said, hey, you know, you guys own some mineral rights down here outside of Houston. Um, have you thought about leasing those minerals? 
the comment back is, we don't know a darn thing about leasing minerals. Can you just make us an offer and buy them so that way we can get some cash? Because we don't know anything about it. We haven't been down there in years. We have no desire to learn about it. If it's worth some money, make us an offer and we'll sell you our mineral rights. So we basically, as a company, bought those tangible assets, those mineral rights, and we paid, in my view, 20 cents on the dollar. And the reason I knew that is what we paid for actual ownership of those tangible assets was actually the same amount it would have taken to lease them from them, where we would have gotten a small percentage and they would have retained the bulk of that interest as the actual owner of the mineral rights, but they didn't want it, they didn't care, and they said, let me sell them. I took that dual communication between both bankruptcy trustees and being an out-of-the-box thinker, I said, you know, let me think about this. So I've had two different scenarios where I've had two surface owners who both are in farming, both file bankruptcy, they both have mineral rights, they both have other investments, and they don't know how to liquidate. They don't know how to monetize the assets they have because they don't realize there's multiple layers of value. The guys could have sold their mineral rights and made enough cash to maybe pay off the bank or maybe hold off the bank and keep out of bankruptcy, both cases. They could have done several things that would have invigorated their portfolios and kept them alive. You, as my listeners, what I'm getting you to think about when I go through this is, what can you be thinking about while you're sitting at home, you're looking for things to do, you're looking for other ways to invest? You need to start thinking about different ways of looking at assets and investments. So let's go to the next example. I took that information from those two bankruptcy trustees and I said, let me ask you guys a question independently. Where do I go to find out all bankruptcy trustees who list assets they have to liquidate as a trustee of the federal or the, or the state bankruptcy court? They said, well, the federal court in Texas has like four or five federal bankruptcy districts, and they all are in different parts of the state, Louisiana, Colorado, Oklahoma, because I'm down in Texas. I said, okay, if I want to be put on that list and notified of bankruptcy items, how do I do it? Oh, it's simple. We, we have to, as a bankruptcy trustee, we have to recognize willing buyers of assets from bankruptcies, and we will notify you of all future bankruptcy liquidations. You just simply write a letter to the court. You tell them that you're an interested buyer, that you're qualified, and you want to be able to buy. So, well, what does it take to qualify? I said, uh, you're breathing, and you have money, and you can match the terms in which you offer to the bankruptcy trustee. So, it's a very simple process. So, I had my secretary draw up a letter I sent it to all the bankruptcy courts within five states, and I said, I am able to buy up to $5 million worth of bankrupt assets. And I didn't have $5 million at the time, back 20 years ago. I just was saying that if I found something of value, I could probably find a few partners to join me if the $5 million asset was worthwhile. But by limiting myself to a smaller dollar amount, I'm afraid I would have missed a lot of good deals because in bankruptcy, sometimes assets get sold for $0.05 cents on the dollar. Well, if I could find a $50 million asset pool for $5 million, I can guarantee you I can find the partners for it. So I sent the letter out. I start looking one after another. And I start buying some bankruptcy assets and I start being very picky what I'm buying. But to me, I'm, I'm making very good sense of buying assets. I believe we're going for, you know, 5, 10, 20 cents on the dollar. Well, here's the example where you start learning how tangible assets provide you tangible results because you start learning how to layer those assets. So I get a notice from the bankruptcy court out of Colorado. And the bankruptcy court in Colorado sent a notice out and said, we own this legal described 80 acres of land that we're liquidating as a trustee settlement on behalf of XYZ bankrupt individual. It's a total chapter seven liquidation. So I looked at it. I, I had one of my staff um, 
reach out to the courts and we looked up the land online and we said, okay, it's 80 acres. It's in South uh, Eastern Colorado. Not a lot going on there. What's the minimum starting price under the bankruptcy trustees requested liquidation? They said $5,000. I said, so I can buy 80 acres of land for $5,000 in Southeast Oklahoma. I said, well, that's, that's a no brainer. I'll buy 5,000 acres just for the heck of it because it's so cheap. We started doing basic due diligence. What we did was we contacted the county. We listed the legal description. We listed the bankruptcy trustees filing. And the county clerk said, well, that's not 80 acres. He owns three parcels of 80 acres each. All three parcels total 240 acres. So I picked up the phone, being a good guy, and I contacted the bankruptcy trustee and said, hey, look, we've got a total of 240 acres here, not 80 acres. So is it $5,000 per 80 acres? She goes, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's 5,000 for that listed item on the bankruptcy liquidation. So I can buy for $5,000, I can buy 240 acres. She goes, yep. So I submitted my offer. I made it, I think I paid $6,500. I decided to offer a little bit more to make sure I didn't not get the opportunity. And I thought, well, great. I can buy almost a half a section of land for uh, basically $6,500. said, even if I just resell it for double the price, it's not a bad return, even though it's a small investment. So we buy the uh, mineral, we buy the uh, surface, we close on it with the bankruptcy trustee. I then get a notice from an oil and gas company that says, uh, we need to get the correct title of your ownership so we can start sending you your revenue. I'm like, what revenue? So I had my land department because I have somebody that specializes in looking up land and mineral rights. That's what I do for a living. I said, find out what the heck's going on. What do you mean uh, my check? Well, it turned out there was actually three producing gas wells that were generating revenue on the property. They had been drilled and the bankrupt individual had been getting revenue from the uh, gas royalty distribution every month from these wells, but had failed to tell the courts. Well, once the filing of my ownership also included the mineral rights, the oil company then suspended that particular bankrupt individual's rights, notified me. I gave them the copy of the deed in the courthouse. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting cash and revenue coming from the three gas wells that were on the property. So not only did I get 240 acres, now I have mineral rights. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I got surface, I got mineral rights. It gets even better. About 90 days after I closed on the property, filed the deed of ownership, showed it in my name, I get a letter from the U.S. government. And the U.S. government says, we'd like to know uh, if you'll fill out the form to continue your set-aside program distribution. I'm like, what the heck is that? Well, the federal government had given that particular part of Colorado a government set-aside program, which means they paid you not to farm. So as it worked out and went through the paperwork, they were paying almost $11,000 a year on that 240 acres not to farm. So if I agreed not to farm, I'm getting $11,000. I'm almost getting a 200% return on my money every year. I said, gladly, I will not farm the 240 acres. Gladly, I will take the revenue coming from the mineral interest I got that nobody knew was there. And so now what I have is a $6,500 investment I'm making almost 11000 a year in set-aside fees, and I'm also getting royalty income coming from three gas wells. It gets even better. So I'm waiting about a year or two. I'm now getting checks. I'm happy. I'm thinking, well, this is not a big investment, but it's a nice investment. It's a great return. It just motivates me that much more to think out of the box. It makes me that much more motivated to find all these little hidden jewels in tangible assets. All of a sudden, I get a notice from a group out of California, and they call me up and they said, Mr. Eckerd, you happen to be of record owning 240 acres in this area, this township in Colorado. We know you're part of the set-aside program. We're trying to find assets for our investors who have 1031 tax exchange. 
They're selling property in California. They need to find other investments of like kind that'll generate revenue. We're trying to make eight, nine, 10% return a year. It looks like you're generating about $11,000 a year on your property. We would like to give you equivalent of a 10 cap rate. We'd like to give you an equivalent of $100,000 to buy your 240 acres because we want that $11,000 worth of revenue. I said, so you're going to buy my land in order to get the $10,000, $11,000 a year on the set-aside program so your investor can do a 1031 and have the property and generate a 10, 11% return a year. I said, absolutely. Well, when can you close? Well, we can close in a couple of weeks. We just got to go through the 1031 exchange, get that done, nominate your property. We can close in you know, two to four weeks. I said, fantastic. But I'm keeping the royalties. I'm keeping all the oil and gas mineral rights. And they said, we don't even know what that is. You're, yeah, you can keep that as long as it doesn't prevent us from getting our set-aside revenue. So that's what we did. We, sell, we sold the property for roughly $100,000. I kept the mineral rights. And so let's replay this whole story. $6,500 purchase from a bankrupt, bankruptcy. Land is generating about 11000 a year in revenue. I have mineral rights across the 240 acres that are generating revenue from the oil and gas that I've now been getting for almost 15 years. This is like 15, 18 years ago, still getting revenue. I get a 1031 exchange approach me about buying the land, pays me $100,000 for it. I still have the mineral rights, which I got an offer about 10 years ago for $150, dollars an acre just to lease it because it's got oil under it. They wanted the drill. And at the end of the day, what did I learn from this lesson? By owning the actual land and by owning the mineral rights and by owning something tangible, I was able to extract maximum value out of it. Now, why am I, why am I harming, uh, hammering on this point? Because many of you think I guess because of lack of experience or maybe just because you didn't know better and lack of information. But really what it boils down to is that at the end of the day, all of us have to look at the way our investments are handled and set up. You want to protect your assets. How do you protect your assets? Well, today, if there were some reason a stoppage in the stock market, 21 trillion of $25 trillion has no hard assets to support the value. And that number has got to be double that by now, by the way. The last two years, the way stocks have rocketed, that's going to be more like $40, $45 trillion, right? So how do you own stock where essentially 85% of the value has no underlying liquidation component? You can't go sell the planes, trains, real estate because it doesn't exist. It's all in intangible blue sky goodwill value. That should make many of you, when you look at your stock portfolio, at least take a pause and step back and say, wait a minute. Do I own anything really? Do I really own something of value? Do I own true gold or only paper gold? Do I own the silver I bought? Is it in my, in my war chest? Is it in my safety deposit box? Is it in my safe at home? Or do I own a contract to, to silver? Do I actually own oil and gas? Or do I own in a partnership where the partnership owns the oil and gas? You simply own a piece of the partnership. Most investors absolutely are confused by the difference. The difference is as follows. If there's not a direct link between you and that asset, you don't own the asset. If I'm in an LLC and I'm an investor, I'm a member. Okay, it's like a country club. You don't own the club and you don't own the golf course and you don't own the swimming pool. You own the club by virtue of your club membership and everybody owns a piece of the club and the club actually owns the golf course and the real estate and the clubhouse and, and the swimming pool. So you're a member, but you're not an owner. And there's a big difference. The same thing applies to real estate. Many of us go out and say, hey, there's a guy putting together a joint venture. It's a mobile home park. It's an apartment complex. 
and we say, great, I want to be an investor. I really like the idea. The apartment complex is a great uh, model. It's going in the right location. I feel good about it. And the promoter or the sponsor or the, or the company says, we're going to do this in an LLC. And each LLC member is going to put up $100,000. We're going to have 40 LLC members to provide the equity, blah, blah, blah. Let's say that at some point in time, you want to liquidate. Well, you can't. Why not? Because there's probably provisions, contractual provisions that tell you what you can liquidate, when you can liquidate, how you can liquidate, and all the rules and regulations of the buyer who's going to buy your LLC member unit, what they can or can't do, and all the requirements to become a new LLC member buying you out. So you now don't own a piece of that real estate. You own a piece of an LLC that owns that real estate. I have found over 35 years, that's one of the most confusing things that most of our investors just can't get their head around. They think they're in the gold business. They think they're in the real estate business. They think they're in the farming business. They think they're in the oil and gas business when really what they're in, they're in the investment business. And at the end of the day, the tangible asset component is that they do or may be involved in a entity, a vehicle, a tax ID uh, company that owns hard tangible assets underneath it. But how many of you really own those assets yourself? So in my examples I gave you today, I just wanted to point out a couple of key things on this first show. One, I encourage you to be open-minded. Don't be short-sighted. Um, I used to look, when I first started the business in 1985, I was asked to uh, get a list of qualified investors and you're gonna contact them about investing in oil and gas. So the first day I walk in, I sold, told my sales manager, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a young, dumb kid. I'm, I'm hopefully gonna get uh, an experience at this. I'm getting my license. I really appreciate the opportunity, blah, blah, blah. But can I ask a question? He said, sure. I said, who's the worst salesman in the room? And he pointed to a guy in this fancy suit sitting over by the window. He said, that guy, he won't be here by Friday. He, he dresses the part, talks the part, he will not be here by Friday. I said, okay, who's the best salesman in the room? He said, well, that guy over there, the guy with the quirky walk and the funny looking pants and doesn't look like much of anything. That's our number one guy. I said, do you have a problem if I sit with the guy over here that is the worst today? He goes, why in the heck would you want to look or sit with a guy who is not going to be here by Friday, who I just told you was the worst salesman? I said, because it's going to tell me everything I need to know about how I don't want to run my business in investments. I want to know everything he knows to avoid being like that. And I've got to create a scale. I got to know from the worst to the best how things work. So I sat with this guy for the entire first day. And the, he probably wasn't on the phone more than an hour. He spent most of his time trying to get his BMW from being foreclosed. He didn't know about his product. He just he was just fake. He couldn't do it. And he was probably in his mid-40s. The next day I walked over and I knocked on the door of the number one big guy in the office. And I said, sorry, Mr. So-and-so, do you mind if I sit in your office today? I'd like to see what you do and how you do it. And he said, you can only sit in my office under one condition. Do not talk to me all day long, except when I go to the men's room, because I don't want to hear your voice because you interrupt my day. And if you ask me questions, make them only about investing and only about assets and the product, because otherwise I don't really want to share with you because I don't know you. And I don't know if I'm going to know you in a week from now, you may not be here not really rude, just matter of fact. I said, no problem. So I sat there for two days, the beginning of my career, listening to two people, but I got to also listen to the dialogue they had with investors on the other end of the phone. I noticed that the first guy never inquired, never inquired about the investments his investors were talking about. He only wanted one thing, and that was to execute a transaction. The other guy that was the number one salesman, when he had an investor talking about 
stock market or bonds or ostrich farms or any type of investment, he spent a lot of time inquiring, inquiring, how does that work? Why did you do it? What do you get out of it? What's the, the potholes? What's the bad aspect of that particular type of investment? So I didn't ask Carly any questions the entire day. And at the very end of the day, he was about to wrap up. And I said, may I ask a couple of questions at the end of the day? He goes, sure. He said, first off, thank you very much for not interrupting all day. You're the first person that's done that. I said, well, you asked me to respect your time. And so I did. But now I just need a couple of clarity points and I'll get out of your hair. He said, go, what are they? I said, why do you spend so much time asking questions about all these other investments that, that you don't sell, you don't offer, but you're asking about all these other investments? He said, how in the world am I going to be able to have a, a investment asset globe of all the opportunities out there and know one from the other, good and bad, if I don't inquire and ask about them? How do I know my oil and gas investment is better than my real estate or better than an apartment complex or why self-storage is better than maybe an industrial park? How do I know that farming or agricultural is not a good investment? Back in the 80s, it was all about uh, lease cars, leasing uh, rail cars and leasing all these. Leasing was big, big, big back in the 80s, but it all had different components. And so what he said is, I inquire for two reasons. I must know what's in the marketplace because the more I know, the more I can be able to measure my investment product against others, but more importantly is I can avoid investing in those myself. I'm trying to learn so I can invest my own money because 90% of his clients at that time, he said, had a great deal of their wealth in tangible assets, oil, real estate, things you can see, touch, kick, or feel. And if he didn't learn about them, he didn't know about them, one, he couldn't sell his own product, but more importantly is he was more interested in learning so he could avoid the traps of investing in those uh, intangible assets or things that did not have a great deal of value or at least understanding where the, the risk and the, and the pitfalls were going to take place. I found the same thing in my career. So I'm just letting each of you know, I'm super excited about this particular series, Tangible Assets for Tangible Results. I'm very excited about sharing with you examples. I'm very excited about digging into raw land development, telling you some of the pros and cons that I've seen. I'm very interested in talking and having guest speakers in here about things like multifamily apartments, about mineral rights, natural gas pipelines, why buy public, can you buy personal? Why in the world we should look at things where the structure of the investment itself is really about how we own it directly. You know, when Exxon divvies up their dividend, it's really the dividend that's left over after they sucked out all the profits, used it to expand their company, and paid all their bills. What if you happen to own Exxon's actual minerals and you got 100% revenue without deductions, without there being a a, a very disciplined spooning out of a small percentage of revenue in a form of a dividend. What if you actually owned Exxon as a stock, but you own minerals underneath Exxon's wells and you got, I don't know, 15 to 25% of the revenue at the very same time Exxon got their money? Now, wouldn't that be something special? Well, that's what I've been doing for 35 years. I get direct revenue from minerals I own directly from some of the major oil companies in this country. I'm talking from Exxon, Continental Resources, Aventive. Now, that is important for me to point this out in the, in the closing five minutes of the show, seven minutes of the show for the following reason. You do not have to invest in tangible assets to have the advantage of investing in publicly traded assets that focus on tangible assets. You don't have to learn about all of them. You can decide what fits you. I mean, there may be too much risk in one tangible asset and less risk in another. You may find that your time horizon doesn't fit. It'd be like me calling you up saying, look, I'm going to plant a bunch of pecan trees and we're not going to see the first commercial crop for five years, and they don't mature really get good until the 15th year. And you say, look, 
I'm 70 years old. I don't really buy green bananas anymore. So I'm not interested in 10, 15, 20-year type of maturation on my investments. I'm more interested in more income today, limited growth, preservation of capital. What tangible assets fit that? So as we go through our series and as we go through this show every week to week, I'm going to work on telling you what we can invest in with different time horizons, with different risk levels. I'm also going to teach you about due diligence. So I'm going to give you a few tips about due diligence that each one of you need to write down or you need to remember. Number one, the majority of the risk in every investment you make, I'll say it again, the majority of the risk, every one of you need to think is the majority of the risk is in the people. If you're not asking a question, number one, who is the decision maker? Or which is the decision makers? Is it a board, board of advisors? Is it a CEO and a CFO? I want to know who is the one making the decision of what assets I'm going to buy, who's going to manage them, who's making the decision what assets and what class of assets I'm going to be involved in. And then I want a background check. I want to know basic questions. Many of you never asked. I mean, I'm telling you, I've been doing this for 35 years. 95% of you never ask the most basic question. It just blows my mind. You'll, spend, you'll invest 50, 100,000, a million dollars, and you don't ask the most basic questions. Number one, who are the principles behind the investment? Number two, if I'm going to go buy tangible assets, am I buying it for somebody who is a crook? Ask the question, do you or any of your principles currently or in the past, have you ever been convicted of a felony or any criminal act, or have you ever been suspended from any securities regulation authority, whether it be state or federal? Yes or no? Respond in writing. The next question, what do you have as far as skin in the game? You know, when I was younger, I never did understand. I'm a young guy. I barely have any money. I'm not even married yet. I'm trying to get married and have a start of family. And I'd have investors say, Troy, are you invested in the same wells we're in? Are you investing the same minerals you're going to invest with us? And I said, well, no, I, I don't have the money to do it. I'm, I'm young and I'm just starting my career. Well, call me back in four or five years because I don't invest in anything where the company or the person who's giving me the advice doesn't invest in it. You all would be very, very shocked to see your investment advisor's portfolios for their own account. Or if you ran a credit check on your own investment advisor, you would be shocked to see that a good portion of your investment advisors have actually filed bankruptcy before. A good portion of your investment advisors have, in fact, got all kinds of regulatory violations, cease and desist orders. They've been kicked out of financial planning. They've got lawsuits that are pending. But man, they show up at that lunch meeting with you and they've got that suit and tie on and their fingernails look awfully pretty and they're very clean. But you don't ask those questions because you think, well, it might be rude. It might be inappropriate for me to ask. I think it's the opposite. I think you owe it to your family and you owe it to yourself to ask those tough questions. Look, when it comes to tangible assets, you're taking direct ownership. I want to know that piece of real estate you're selling me. I want to know you own it and I want clear deeded title. That's a simple process in real estate. Why would you do any less when you buy other tangible assets like oil and gas or mineral rights or pipelines or anything that has to do with that tangible component? I want to know the paper trail. I want to know, are you brokering it? Do you not own it, but you're trying to lock it up and then resell it to me for a profit? And if so, I have the legal right to know the difference. If you bought something for $1,000 and you're selling it to me for $5,000, but you never took possession of it, then you better tell me how much you're making. I may decide a 400% markup is not fair and just. I might give you 30%, but I'm sure as heck not giving you 400%. So in the due diligence realm, we as investors, and 
Trust me, I have been burned for millions. I have made mistakes myself. I have lost money to people. I look at them. They look like nice, honest people. They come from different companies. And I say to myself, well, this is all legitimate. I've had my lawyer look at it. You cannot get around fraud. They can file fraudulent documents. They can lie through their teeth. I can tell you right now, you must ask the questions if you're going to invest, whether it be public stocks, going to an advisor, or you're doing it on your own. You specifically need to take care of the very basis, which is asking those due diligence questions. So I'm going to start the show this week, and I'm going to end the show this week with the same thing. I am a rowdy South Texas guy. I'm 56 years old. I've been married for 35 years. I got four kids, three are married. I've got five grandkids and one on the way. Uh, for those who know me, there is no guessing what's on my mind. I tell you exactly what I think. I tell you my politics. I tell you uh, what exactly I live my life. I tell you about how proud I am of my state of Texas. But what you're going to get as a listener on this show is you're going to get hardcore information. You're going to get facts and figures, and you're going to get opinions. And you're not going to always agree to my opinion, but the fact of the matter is you're definitely going to agree that it's clear where I stand. I have a show called uh, Mental Talk with the Texan. And what I want to tell you is that every show we do on Voice America, every show, Troy W. Eckert, tangible investing for tangible results, tangible assets for tangible results, we're going to talk about things that have substance that you can see, touch, kick, or feel. As I close today's session, what I want to remind you is I'm always available at my internet site, which is EckertEnterprises.com. You can always contact me on my 800 number, 800-527-8895. You can always email me. It's teckert at EckerdEnterprises.com or teckerdeckerdglobal.com. I'm a workaholic. I love what I do. I'm online all the time. I have a PhD lesson in life about investing, pitfalls, due diligence, and assets. I'm not saying I'm an expert in any or all of the above. What I'm saying is I've had some of the greatest investors you could ever want to talk to who we become friends with and I've learned from. And because of that, I can give you so much information. I can provide you with so many unique ways to look at things. You're going to walk away, hopefully, from every single show saying, wow, I didn't think about that. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great information. That's something I can do. And I am going to be working very diligently on making sure that it's exciting, the show is full of information, and that you get what you're asking for. Again, I'm Troy Eckert. I am so excited to have this show. I'm so excited that you all have joined me as a listener. And I just want to tell you, call me, email me, text me. Join me week to week. Each week, challenge me. Tell me what you want from me, and I'll deliver. Because the fact is, I love what I do. Life has been great, and I couldn't be having a better time than I'm having today. I'm Troy Eckert. I thank you so much for the show today. Tangible investing for tangible results and signing off for now. Take care. Thank you so much. Time, talent, and expertise. That is Tangible Assets for Tangible Results. Please join your host, Troy Eckert, every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central Time, and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.